This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. In turn, the BAS providers are getting much better at the program management concierging, which is like, which is your ideal partner? They're almost like a dating coach. They're, they're sort of helping you find your way to the right banking partner. You know, this is speed dating over here via APIs. And that's a good thing. That's a net positive. Accessing communities that are underserved digitally, that have pools of deposits that make sense to banks who are simply lacking the digital tools to be able to get out to them and grow their relationship with them. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Not Fintech Investment Advice. My name is Alex Johnson, the creator of Fintech Takes, and I'm delighted to be joined by everyone's favorite returning guest, the wise and powerful Simon Taylor. Simon, thanks for being back. Thanks for calling me wise and powerful. Nice to be back. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. It's uh, spring-ish in Montana, which means there's snow on the ground, but the weather is warming up. My kids can spend more time outside and consecutive blocks. It's fantastic. How are you? Yeah, similar. It's spring in the UK, which means it's gray and miserable. And (laughs) not unlike the opposite of my mood, because I'm always happy to explore new fintech companies, learn more about the world, and just get inspired. It's my fuel, my friend. It's my fuel. It makes me want to jump through walls, run through walls. Jump over walls, run through walls, yeah. navigate around walls cleverly, everything, like, no, no walls can stop you. It's surprising what getting inspired by fintech can do to a guy. It really yes, is. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's like that whole, like, adrenaline lifting a car off your kid thing. Like, let's do the equivalent of that for fintech right now. That's happening. Stay locked, listeners. This is going to be a good one. Fantastic. As always, I will caveat this discussion by saying that Simon and I are not investment professionals. We follow our curiosity, and there's a reason that we don't typically write checks at the end of that process. So please do not take this as investment advice. But as listeners of this podcast will know, the plan is for Simon and I to bounce back and forth between a couple of interesting fintech companies that we have selected to talk about. We will take turns exchanging the different companies that we came up with and then spend a couple minutes at the end trying to manifest some new thing in fintech that we'd like to see. Simon, as the guest and everyone's favorite fintech commentator, I will let you go first. What is your first fintech company? The first fintech company is Zamp Finance, Z-A-M-P Finance. And I call this like brokerage meets Brex. So imagine if underneath Brex, instead of an FDIC-insured bank account, or however much we're FDIC-insuring things these days, and (laughs) however many bank accounts are involved, there was a brokerage account holding U.S. Treasuries. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the core difference. And so it's got all the features you'd expect, payments, debit, credit cards, but it's not built on the bank account. And it also acts as an outsourced treasury or finance team that recommends investment portfolios, things to do to manage currency risk, depending on what your business is and does. And of course, it's all built on top of BNY Mellon, the world's largest custodian bank. So mm-hmm. interesting. I have thoughts, but I'm going to stop for your thoughts. Your like, immediate reaction, go. So Zamp is one that I have seen recently. I think they sort of re-emerged from stealth, were in stealth, and then came back out, whatever. So they've been sort of making news recently. Super interesting. I mean, it's part of this surge, I think, that we've seen. And I guess you could say that fintech is very responsive to needs of the market. And, you know, no one who works in fintech is bad at pivoting. That's kind of the job. And so I think this sort of corporate treasury management outsourced, really outsourced CFO is kind of what we're talking about here, right? In the wake of SVB makes a ton of sense. I do think the sort of core differentiator of it being built primarily on a brokerage account rather than on sort of a traditional bank account is interesting. That that seems like a very intentionally different product design choice. And it's interesting, right? Because most of the business banking services that you see are sort of like operating account first, treasury management second, like it's bolted on. And this would seem to be maybe a little bit different than that. But again, in the wake of SVB, it seems like People are specifically looking for this treasury management function. So that, I imagine, is sort of what colored that design choice. What's your take on that? 
Yeah, every spend management platform is trying to add treasury management. Every treasury management platform is trying to add spend management. <laughs> right. And they're all trying to add treasuries for some kind of yield. So everything starts to look the same. It's homogenizing. It's just about where do you start and what's the upside of doing that? Uh, and what's the benefit to the customer? And I wonder, I'm in two minds about this. Is this a post-SVB bit of timing that's really, really good, that everybody wants to buy treasuries, everybody wants that best yield, why would I leave my deposits sticking around getting 0.4% when they should be getting 4.5% in treasuries? That was thought number one, like everybody's doing it. And thought number two, you know, sorry, everybody's doing it, and is this a temporary phenomenon? And thought number two is, if it's a temporary phenomenon, what happens when interest rates do start to come down? We're already seeing the mood music start to turn from some commentators that maybe the Fed tightened too far and maybe rates are going to come down and we're a little bit concerned that the Fed's artificially creating a recession. So if that happens, what happens to these businesses? What happens to the race for ever more FDIC insurance if interest rates stop to come back down? Does that change anything? Do these guys have any structural advantages? And is the future of a bank not a bank, but actually treasuries and US government debt? And what does that mean? So there are so many questions swimming around in my head. Any of those resonate that you want to pick up on being my guest? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the one thing that to your point about the sustainability of this that I, I don't know, worry might be a little bit of a too strong word, but I think a lot about is you're making decisions about your product roadmap, right? And if you're, especially an early stage startup, and I think these guys have been around for a year or two now, you have limited resources. And so you have to make these decisions. And I do sort of worry that there's a long-term product roadmap where it's like, hey, what's the best thing to build for our customer base that's really going to differentiate us and create a moat. Normally, those things are not created overnight. Normally, you have to build those yourselves. It's not just something where, you know, you plug in BNY Mellon or you plug in GECO or you plug in whatever your sort of corporate treasury management sort of partner on the back end. Or to use the FDIC analogy, you know, you're plugging in a bank that has access to IntraFi or one of those deposit sweeps networks. Like, that's cool. And it's good that you can do that quickly. But Everyone else can do that too. And it's not really going to differentiate you that much. And I do worry about pulling focus away from other things, especially given the fact that now this is not necessarily a brand new idea, right? I mean, everyone who does banking for startups is contemplating some version of this yield plus uninsured deposit safety, essentially, is a customer need. The other thing I think is interesting about ZAMP, I was doing a little Googling to refresh my memory when you were talking, is these guys actually raised a $21.7 million seed round last year, which is a huge, huge, huge round. And um, it caught my eye when I was doing some research a couple weeks ago. They actually had started out in crypto and were working sort of building a... A yield product, right? Yeah, like a yield product, I think, for businesses. But the yield was coming from crypto. And obviously, post-crypto crash and post-SVB... We've seen a number of companies make the jump from that into more of this corporate treasury management function. And I guess that's the other thing I sort of am curious about is there's a surface level ability to build a product and ability to go to market quickly and to pivot. But there's also sort of a deeper level of expertise, I think, that's needed to really dominate like the corporate treasury management. And so the question I would have would be like, as these companies that you're working with get a little bigger as they grow, right? Because anyone like Brex or whatever company that's operating in the space, they want to work with startups, but they're hoping to retain startups that grow and are really successful, right? Kind of replicating that Stripe model where you start small and then kind of hope to ride the coattails. Get the long tail and catch them on the way up. Yeah. 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 You catch these shooting stars on the way up. And that's probably a bad analogy because shooting stars probably go down. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Directionally. You know. Yeah. 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 Like metaphorically, that's an accurate analogy. And I do sort of wonder if these companies that are all pivoting into corporate sort of treasury management, as these companies they're working with become bigger and they hire a CFO and they hire a finance team, are you going to be able to grow with those companies in terms of the sophistication of your offering, right? Because 
once a, a company gets bigger, you know, so that that to me is kind of the question I'm wondering about. I would kind of hope so. And again, I, you mentioned Stripe. I look at those guys and Stripe's going enterprise now. The, you know, you've got Adyen at the top coming down with great margin. They're always started in enterprise, and that's a great place to start, like mm-hmm. uh, a wonderful place to be. The segmenting long tail market, you can do it. Like I've always been surprised by the enterprise customers Stripe does have. And if you go onto their website and start looking at their enterprise pages, it's like, oh, you do know what you're talking about when it comes to that stuff. Like you get it. Is it? Um, you're just not Adyen because they were born there. And this is kind of my point about where you start influences so much about your culture, your expertise, and what you can eventually be and become. These platforms, often when they're adding a feature, they're doing it via a third party. They're doing it via somebody else. Whereas I think actually, I've not seen anybody build on top of brokerage, like adding banking features to brokerage is an interesting starting point. And therefore, what does that create? Because ultimately everybody wants the CFO in their pocket. They want that sophistication that Coca-Cola and Exxon and Google have in their treasury management team, thinking about currencies, thinking about how to get the most out of their balance sheet. That's super important and you want that. But to do that by opening an account at BNY and building a treasury management function, you're talking about you know 30 people, putting in SAP or Oracle or something, you know, this is hard to do at a sophisticated level. Whereas these companies all attacking it from different places have the opportunities to grow into that for a different generation of people. They might get displaced, but what I haven't seen is somebody start where SAP started and start where Oracle started with NetSuite, which is to say, We're actually going to go directly after the treasury management function. Yeah. We're going to go after ELP directly. And that's an interesting white space to kind of think about. And maybe it's because the go-to-market's too hard. Maybe because these companies are fairly well-served until they're not, and then they become too big and they go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Might be good reasons for it. But yeah, anyway, that was fun. Yeah, no, that was a great one. I totally agree with your thoughts. The Ajin Stripe analogy for this market, I think, is super interesting and as we've seen with sort of those large enterprise customers, I mean, sometimes the people in charge of making those decisions have to retire before you can flip over some of those accounts, right? I mean, there's an element of like just generational, like waiting out the decision makers sometimes with these businesses. That's a long sales cycle in enterprise. Where I have it over it's like, wait till the guy retires. Yeah. Yeah. You think selling to a bank for like 24 months is hard. Yeah. Like wait until the executives at Coca-Cola retire, you know, like that's kind of what we're talking about here. So interesting challenge. Should we jump to the next one? Jump. Let's go. I'm with you. So my first one is a company called Productify and they, I think have been around for a little while. They are a banking as a service platform. So they sort of sit in between companies that want to launch financial products and bank partners that they have on the back end. So similar to a unit or a Sinkterra or a Treasury Prime. The distinction, though, that I think is kind of interesting and that I wanted to talk through with you is that they have a much more sort of buttoned up set of product templates that they want to offer. And so rather than taking the approach of hey, you know, we want to work exclusively with fintech companies and technology companies that have developers, they're looking to build products, and they really just want these sort of modular building blocks and APIs that we can call. And all we need to do is give them like the documentation and the SDKs and just let them run. This is not that. This is a little bit more, here are these different product templates. We sort of thought through all of the things that are needed to launch a bank account, branded card programs, a secured charge card, maybe like a payments disbursement product. And the reason that they take a slightly different approach in terms of packaging those things more is that they have a little bit more of a focus, from what I understand, on instead of working with companies that have like a brand affinity play, so something like, oh, you know, I'm going to get a savings account with Nike because I really like Nike and I'm a loyal customer and I like the, the brand affinity is really strong. Instead of taking that embedded finance play, which I think is what most companies, candidly, in the sort of embedded finance space are doing, these guys are focused more on what I would sort of classify as high-trust, low-tech environments, right? And so the thinking is basically that if you want to actually get 
bank accounts into consumers' hands through an embedded sort of play, you need to not necessarily look for places where there's a high level of engagement and affinity, which has kind of been the playbook for finding these opportunities, but rather you need to look in the places where there's the highest amount of trust and where that trust has not translated into necessarily offering all of the products and services that you might expect because it's kind of a low-tech environment, right? So this is the world of nonprofits. This is the world of churches. This is the world of social services organizations. And so the sort of analogy is, or to give a specific example, if there's a church that or a religious organization that is working with a specific community and helping immigrants who are moving to that community get settled, figure out sort of what they're doing, maybe find jobs, sort of providing all of those sort of initial support services, they actually do a lot of sort of lo-fi banking type activities right now, right? Like they disperse financial aid. Most of it's in the form of like gift cards and other things. And they're actually very well positioned to offer financial services products. Now, if you went to them with API specifications and, you know, here's our documentation, you know, just let your developers cook with this, you're not going to get anywhere, right? And so you have to have a very different go-to-market approach. You have to have a very different sort of implementation process. But there is a lot of potential to reach into some of these still underserved communities, right? So if you think about like the population of consumers that Chime is going after, they're underserved or unbanked, but they're relatively young, they're relatively tech savvy, and they understand the concept of like digital banking and downloading it onto your phone and finding someone. It's a big old tailwind for adoption and distribution right there because you're serving those who want to be served in that way versus maybe facing into a headwind, but going into it, it's almost like sailing into the headwind. You know, you're sort of trying to navigate that to be like, okay, I'm still going to make the most out of this because I realized that what these communities need is a little bit more, here's one I made earlier, than here are the pieces to make your own. Exactly. And so it's, I think to your point there, it's kind of like inserting banking as a service and embedded finance into existing communities rather than trying to like form new communities. And I think that's kind of an interesting distinction between this sort of niche neobanking play built around communities that we've been talking about for the last couple of years, which candidly has not worked maybe as well as you might have wanted. And I think one hypothesis maybe for why it hasn't is forming communities where they don't already exist in a tightly knit way is really hard. Tapping into existing communities where there already are these like strong bonds and you're just adding banking into them might be a slightly different way of tackling that same problem. So what do you think about this? So I worry about two problems. Is it? I worry about scaling and I worry about distribution, which sort of follows the scaling issue. Yeah. So from a scaling and particularly from a value standpoint, yep. if I'm product fi I need to figure out where the pain is in getting something like this done for my customers. And for the most part, the pain in trying to launch any financial product is the closer you get to the metal, the closer you get to regulation, legal compliance, take that away, abstract it into an API, and I'll figure out the rest later. I'm, you know, the hiring engineers and that I can do and building UIs I can do, that's all solvable. But that gnarly stuff, having somebody take care of that, that I'm not an expert in would be, that's where the value is. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying with ProductFi is we've got that too, but the value for these communities is much higher up the stack. Is it? I would question whether that is the value and whether this is a feature of units in Terra, Treasury Prime, rather than a business. Mm-hmm. So that because you've moved so far up, couldn't a church group, couldn't somebody else use no-code, low-code solutions, layer this over the top, couldn't unit work with UI path, couldn't, like you can get 90% of the way there with the bits that are already there. Like there's the only tiny little details are like the compliancy stuff and the branding stuff. Mm -hmm. But even then, go partner with a bunch of consultancies. And in fact, I know there's a bunch of them. I founded one of them that does that stuff day in, day out, that just like, yeah, you can kind of get that there for those communities. So yeah, how much are you adding? And especially when those folks would always want a human to hold their hand, typically those communities. 
they're going to go to a consultancy and the incentives of a consultancy are to do more work, not to do less work. So somebody comes along and does all of the things that they would do, that's less billable hours. So you've kind of got an incentive clash there. So I worry about where the value is here. And that second point about distribution is some of these communities are very, very big, but they're distributed. Right. Like the biggest church in the downtown area of a major metropolitan city mm -hmm. probably got quite a few people, probably not 12 million, probably, probably not 40 million. Yeah. So how do you get the returns to scale here, both for the, well, I guess it doesn't matter so much for the nonprofit and, and so on, but for the product fly guys. So the returns to scale there, their distribution, like how do they go collect this and go to market? And maybe somebody's going to get in touch afterwards and go, aha, there's this thing you haven't thought of. And I'd love to know what that is, mm -hmm. because this is a classic example of the last mile problem. You ever heard that one? That uh, The last mile is the hardest. If I'm going to ship something to you via FedEx or whatever, DHL, then getting it from where I am to a post office, I'm in control mm -hmm. of. Then it's like hubs and spokes. They can get it all the way to Montana, which will have a regional hub pretty quickly. That's, that's fine. We know how to do that. It's getting it to the truck, to you. That's where all of the cost is. And this is the ultimate example of a last mile problem when I'm dealing with these communities. They're all last mile problems. So what's the way I gather them together and make sense of them? That was kind of my, uh, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Yeah, no, that's awesome. You'd be an excellent TED Talk speaker, by the way. Um, that soothing British accent, like you'd kill it. The thing I think is interesting to your point about the distribution, that thing, that came to my mind as well as a challenge. And it, it reminds me in some ways of sort of a different version of the small business problem, right? Which is you see all these companies get into the we want to do small business banking. We want to do small business lending. We want to compete with Intuit, blah, 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 blah. And like what you don't realize is there's so many small businesses and they're everywhere and they're really hard to get to. And the reason that like Intuit dominates in that space is among other things, they just have a really strong brand and they have all of these built-in franchises that they can cross sell off of. And so getting to all of those last mile little small businesses everywhere is relatively efficient for them. It's not efficient for someone who the vast majority of small businesses out there have never heard of, right? And so it ends up being a different scale of problem. The thing I kind of wonder about, to your point about solving that last mile problem is, and this is maybe sort of a broader point about banking as a service, but I wonder if we'll start to see more consideration of which banks or credit unions these platforms choose to partner with, right? Because so far... The thinking has been, well, I'll just find the one that's willing to give me sort of the right economic split, that has a good risk tolerance for what I want to do, that's relatively easy to work with from a technology perspective. Like those are the basic blocking and tackling things that you work on for banking as a service. I wonder if the next level, though, is, well, we want to serve this set of customers through fintech partners or whatever. Let's go find banks that already have relationships in those communities or already have some other things they can bring as assets to Ooh. the table. And so I wonder if there's like a banking as a service, like next level distribution angle to tie in here because- That's like, yeah, turning it on its head yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Saying that like you, the bank that are already operating in a community may have an opportunity to push more of your product via your buzz partner, via this community. Ooh. Could you distribute more to them? Could you get out to them more? There's something in that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of upside down, but I like it. And it's interesting, right? Because I, I think the- Like Australia. Well, this upside down, but I like it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think it's funny because one of the things I heard in the fallout of SVB was, you know, you're looking for like sticky deposits, right? And so like, if you're thinking about banking as a service, like where are these sticky deposits? And one of the examples that I hadn't thought of is homeowners associations apparently have like incredibly sticky deposits, right? Because it's like everybody kicks in whatever your fees are. And they just keep it in a bank account and it never changes. They never spend it. It just sticks in there the whole time. And I do wonder if like serving some of these communities might provide a similarly like sticky, like we're, we're not looking to move the money. We're not looking to chase yield. Like, so there might actually be a lot of value to banking partners in tapping into more of these sort of unbanked opportunities in their communities. So I think it's interesting. You know, what's interesting is the like, there's the right banking partner for the right distribution play. There's the right banking partner for the right buzz providers. And this sort of everybody's 
pairing off of the duns thing <laughs> is starting to happen yeah. where the banking partners are getting a lot more, certainly the ones that have been in the game for a little while, are getting so much more sophisticated about what they want out of their third parties totally. and so much more sophisticated about what they want, business they want to do and what they don't. In turn, the BAS providers are getting much better at the program management concierging, which is like, which is your ideal partner? Yeah. They're almost like a dating coach. They're, they're sort of helping you find your way to the right banking partner. You know, this is speed dating over here via APIs. And that's a good thing. Is it? That's a net positive. But I almost, I know we're early for it, but I want to manifest that. Like, let's manifest like, accessing communities that are underserved digitally, that have pools of deposits that make sense to banks who are simply lacking the digital tools to be able to get out to them and grow their relationship with them. Yeah, that's a good one to manifest. Let's mark that one down as a good one to, to circle back it's on. It's a at bonus the end. one. It's a bonus you one, know? yeah. Like, exactly, exactly. No, I love it. I, I think that makes sense. It This is a not awesome analogy because I'm not a huge fan of the fossil fuel industry, but it kind of does remind me of like, shale oil that's like already on like this land and we just haven't been able to get access to it like there are these untapped pools of deposits sitting in some of these communities and it's more just about what's the efficient technology to get that out and so i do think there is something to that idea so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna mark that down oh that's a lovely analogy it's a shame it's such a, I know. a climate destructive one <laughs> but I'm, I'm i'm forgiving you you know okay. like we go we're gonna make bread right yeah the planet's biosphere has not been harmed by this analogy nor will it so we'll just we'll leave that there <laughs> okay so simon next one is to you okay the next one is playbook this is the wealth and tax planner in your pocket mm. and their pitch is that they're going to help you increase your net worth by taking advantage of tax advantages that expire annually. So if you don't get your return in on time and file for that tax advantage, gone. You're never going to get it back. The problem is that compounds as lost savings over time that didn't go into your retirement fund, that didn't compound for you. And you know, the magic of compounding is the earlier you get that money, the more it compounds and the more it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So this is like money left on the table that through few clicks, you should be able to go connect. So the platform lets you identify what advantages you're eligible for, move money into those advantaged accounts, automate recurring payments, and then it's got your standard onboarding, connect all of your accounts, and then Playbook will build you a playbook oh. and begin automating. And I think this, like the wealth management app that's actually good is a bit of a trend. This, like, we're going to take advantage of your admin and your tax, and we're going to turn that into a savings and a retirement fund. Like, PFM 10 years ago was a chart. PFM quietly now is getting really, really good. So if this is goes the way that PFM went historically, which is it became a feature inside of every brokerage and every app. Is it? Great. Like, this should be a feature in every brokerage and every app. But I really like something about playbook's brand their look and feel the way they've executed i worry that this is a feature not a business i worry that the best outcome is they get acquired by schwab or somebody like it for them as a business but also if in doing so that's a great exit for the founders and they've transformed and all of the companies like them have transformed the default feature set for tax planning for admin God, there's, the life has enough admin, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's just like, it, admin just explodes. And I'm sorry, but no matter how much I try and learn how to prompt and automate and use no code and low code, it's, that too is just creating more admin. The thing, admin compounds faster than anything. <laughs> so anybody that's trying to build a product that can really deal with it has my absolute support. I totally agree. So I love this. I had not heard of these guys before, but I, I am looking at their website. And first of all, the website and the branding and the graphics are delightful. So that's a check mark in their plus for sure. And I, I like the concept, right? I mean, I think that sort of broad scale, one of the things I think a lot about in the, the B2C fintech space is what are the things that uber wealthy people are able to do by just throwing money and people at a problem? that we can democratize, and I'm not a big fan of that word, generally speaking, but democratize with software, right? And I think that like taking advantage of opportunities within the tax code that can lead to more savings, that can lead to compounding wealth over time, 
that's a huge one, right? I mean, like we know for a fact that people who are wealthier expend quite a bit of resources, honestly, sort of stretching the tax code in whatever jurisdiction they live in into the sort of ideal shape to return yield for them, right? And it's one of those sort of high cost, high return activities. Like you have to spend money to make money when you're sort of doing that tax and financial planning. But if you have enough money to spend and enough bodies to throw at it, you can really get a pretty good return. So I like the idea of being able to democratize access to that with software. I think a lot of the things that really rich people pay for as it relates to like tax advising is a combination of insights and white glove service that's a little bit sort of snooty. And so can we cut out the white glove service part and just automate this with software and an app and get you most of the insights that you need, at least kind of the basic ones that are relatively straightforward that everyone should be doing? I like that. I also, I think in a previous episode, we've talked about this idea that there's allocation decisions that you make as a consumer and as an employee about how much money to put into your 401k, how much to put into an HSA. And then as your life changes or your employer benefits change or whatever, the conditions change, but you don't update those because you went through the employee onboarding and you never returned to that screen and the Rippling app or whatever you're using. So I think that's an interesting way of like, you don't have to go back and look at that. Just give us access to your bank account information. I don't know if they ask for like a connection to your payroll account, but I could see that being another sort of integration opportunity. We'll look at like where you're allocating your funds and like, are you properly using these tax advantaged accounts? And if you're not, we'll adjust those allocations for you. So I like that a lot. I think the question I have, kind of going to your point about like, is this a feature? Is this a business? Is who is the ideal customer base for this? Because I think one of the challenges, and we see this with PFM too, right, is I think I've called it in my newsletter, like the 15% problem. There's always like 15% of people who enthusiastically want to use PFM tools. And they're kind of like, They're type A in their brain. They're the ones who are always trying out like new note-taking apps or they have their budget all mapped out in Excel. Like there's a certain set of people who think that way. The vast majority of people, I would argue something like 80 to 85% don't think that way. And I do wonder like as it relates to like customer acquisition, who are they talking to here, right? Because like you have to- Do you have an adverse selection bias here in the people you're talking to are already doing this so that they don't use you and retain sticky and pay the ongoing fees because they're too good at managing the budget versus the people you want who would never think to use you in the first place or would get lost somewhere on the onboarding. And that's why I think it's a feature, not a business, because- I think there's something to be said for behavioral psychology as well. Like we talked about this before, the best thing you can do with a pension is just default opt-in everybody because then there's no cognitive load. I didn't have to make a decision. It just happened. And those nudges and all of the behavioral psychology tricks that designers have been using in the past couple of decades to get us doom scrolling, like those behavioral psychology tricks, I think are not just key to customer acquisition and engagement in the app. They're key to how customers think about finance and they're key to demographics and ethnographics and not just how old somebody is and where they're at in their life, but the type of human they are and how they think about finances. And again, as a reformed consultant, I spent a lot of time in that subject because you can segment humans into, as you say, the 15% and everybody else who's just like, ah, I got a reeling and try to make it up as I go. How do you get them? And I think you need to default. You need to make it the default. And that's why PFM is a feature as well. But PFM as a business is much, much harder. It's tough. Yeah. Well, and I I think to your point about making it the default and sort of tapping into behavioral psychology, that's what we did when we sort of swapped the tax advantage retirement savings to opt out rather than opt in, right? And like when we made that change, suddenly people were saving way more for retirement, not because suddenly way more people were educated about the benefits of retirement savings or they were actively involved in that process. It was just opt-in. And so, oh, wow, you know, I'm saving a portion of my paycheck towards retirement. And so I think those little things do end up driving a lot more adoption and change over time than a really cool, engaging app that like realistically how much are you going to play with this app or use this app or log into it on a weekly or monthly basis? Probably not that much, right? Because we're talking about compounding wealth over time. And so I do think that the feature point makes is a good one. I think that, I mean, just looking at their website, 
looks like they built it for people who make more than $100,000 a year. So they do have sort of a segment, it appears in mind, like they want people who are, I guess, making enough money, but are not quite sophisticated enough to be taken advantage of these. So I mean, I haven't done the research. High earners don't yet break. Right. The classic Henry stuck in admin, maybe starting a family. Like that is, yeah, you're well enough off to be doing okay and to be able to afford stuff, but it's like you're treading water from a cash flow standpoint. So every little helps. I remember listening to an interview with the CEO of Plaid who built a PFM. And a lot of uh, his friends and buddies that he was like, hey, do you want to use this app? They said no, and but I really like the infrastructure you've built. Can I have access to that? And thus, Plaid is born. And whenever I see a business like this, I really like the calculations they're doing. They've obviously had to do some odd infrastructure work. Go do that. I love fintech feature as an API. You know, it's worked for subscription management. Mina Technologies is out there crushing it. They've got banks as clients and fintech companies. There's a bunch of other things like that in receipts and everything else. Fintech feature as an API is a much more interesting business than fintech feature as an app. Well, and to your point there, I think the other thing that we're going to see a lot more is particularly in the US as we get sort of a more mature open banking infrastructure over time is the analytics layer over top of the data layer in open banking land is really immature right now, right? And so like everyone is either building infrastructure to connect all the accounts together and get the data. That's great. Or they're building these end-user features, like you're saying, but to build those end-user features, they're building the analytics, the calculations, all of the infrastructure that sort of connects those experiences to the data. And I think you're right. There's a whole new class of companies that are coming out that are building infrastructure in that middle layer where like, hey, you know, we got really smart about doing these calculations or like you see this a lot in payments with companies like Astra, right, that started doing like, you know, if-then type optimization of payments for consumers to top up your savings account or whatever, but then they package that into an API and now they're more of an infrastructure company. So I do think directionally that's where a lot of these things will head, but sometimes you have to build the consumer app first just to figure out all those calculations. Well, yeah, and to prove it works, absolutely. Well, good luck to you guys. The world needs less admin. Can you tell I'm drowning? Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. I am too. I am too. It's a I mean, we won't turn the whole podcast into Simon and Alex complain about all the administrative work that they're behind on, but it's a lot, listeners. That is very true. Um, Would you like my last one? Oh, of course I would. Bring it to me. All right. So I'm going to give you one that's a little outside my normal ballpark, but I thought it was really interesting. It's a company called Assis, I think is maybe how you say it. It's A-S-S-I-S. So think of the first five letters in the word assistant, I think is kind of where they're going because it is a virtual assistant for solopreneurs or independent workers. And it's a Brazilian fintech company. So they are focused on helping the 25 million or so people in Brazil who are self-employed. That is a number that is growing, about 7% year over year. And a lot of those folks, based on sort of the research that I saw around this company, are doing, as we've just been talking about, a lot of administrative work on top of their regular job, right? I mean, the sort of core challenge of being an independent worker, having your own business, being a solo entrepreneur, is not the job itself, right? If you're like graphic design, you love doing graphic design, and you're probably relatively efficient at it. But communicating with new customers, creating quotes for projects, sending out invoices, getting paid, all of that is just like a weight around your neck. And so basically, this company built a, I think it's kind of like an integrated service that ties into different chatbots. So on the front end, it's integrated with WhatsApp. And so it can actually communicate on your behalf with new prospects that come in through your website. It can do the initial outreach to them. It can schedule calls with new prospects so you can talk about a project. And then on the back end, I think it, if I'm remembering right from my research, ties into ChatGPT to help sort of facilitate some of those back office processes and to turn sort of the the drudgery of back office into sort of easy, understandable, efficient tasks that then the solo entrepreneur can take over that last mile and make sure that it's getting it right. And really, it's designed to streamline the entire sort of sales to close to billing life cycle. So think of it really as a virtual assistant for that sort of creative class of solopreneurs that are a 
large and growing constituent in Brazil. What do you think? B2B checkout, but for solopreneurs via chat. Yes, that's it. Interesting. Yeah, because that whole B2B checkout space has got really, really hot. And what they really mean by B2B checkout is businesses buy from cards, they use checks, they use invoicing, they use ACH, they've got weird payment cycles. Like, and if you're a solopreneur or you're an entrepreneur or you're just a contractor, just a contractor, but a contractor, freelancer, you might be doing something for six months, three months. You might have things tied to delivery dates. You might have all kinds of stuff that moves up and down and that changes the payments and it changes the invoice and you need to negotiate it back and forth. And this is the hidden stuff that is not doing the work, but it's kind of working on the business instead of in it. And you kind of end up having to do both. And you realize that working on the business is every bit as big, if not a bigger task. I love that it's contextual to the market. I I love that it's kind of thinking about, it's almost striking me as a little bit of invoice automation and a little bit of workflow, a little bit of the payments orchestration types of companies you see. Is it? But again, it's to the context of that individual. So what's their revenue model? What's their business model? What sort of scale are we at? What are we dealing with here? So um, very early, I think raising a seed round type of early. So um, pretty early to that. I couldn't really tell from the research I did exactly what their business model is. Um, They do facilitate the payment uh, at the end of the process. So they do the invoicing and they actually can like process the payment on behalf of the solopreneur. So I would hazard a guess that the sort of basic features are probably paid for at least initially by some sort of split on the payment fee. I don't know that. I, I would hazard a guess that's probably how they're monetizing it. And then maybe there's a more sort of robust feature set that you can get through some type of subscription. That's just a guess on my part. I don't know. The thing that's also interesting, kind of to your point about the workflows is I do agree, right? This is like a very tying a lot of the different individual pieces that are annoying to solo entrepreneurs together into like one workflow. A question that I have though is workflows are very specific, right? So not only does this need to be contextual to a market, Brazil, But I would argue that it probably also needs to be somewhat contextual to the type of work that's being done, right? Because a solopreneur that does sort of creative white collar work is probably going to be a little bit different in terms of their workflow than a solopreneur that does roofing, right? And not that there aren't at a high level similarities, but the devil is in the details when you're doing workflow and you're communicating with customers and you're designing these customer journeys, essentially, that you're going to help automate. And I wonder, again, I couldn't really tell. It kind of felt like it was more focused on that sort of white-collar creative type of solopreneur. I think like a graphic designer who's doing sort of freelance work. But it was a little difficult to tell just because I think they're they're still very, very early. Remember that WhatsApp supports PIX payments in Brazil? And so this is where a lot of informal commerce is happening anyway. So I like the idea of just going after the low-hanging fruit admin that sits to either side of it. Like, you're probably doing it in that place already. Here is some little bits of automation. I know Meta is building more of its own, is it Llama-based AI as well? So it might be Llama-based in terms of the LLM. And so there's little pieces you could put together here to, to kind of make this happen relatively easily and lean into a strong tailwind and kind of make it happen. So it all just seems very sensible, especially given how much kind of when I've looked at the Indian market and, and good friends have educated me about the nature of commerce there. So much of that happens through WhatsApp and messaging apps today. And so much of it happens through the real-time payments rails, if not cash, that then being able to communicate that and being able to administrate that is a major, major help. I think you found something here. I think this could be a theme. Yeah. I think this could be a trend. I've definitely seen a lot for small businesses. Heck, Meta themselves have a whole bunch of stuff they do around small businesses. But going after that specific type and packaging it as an assistant, it's quite neat. Yeah. There's something neat. Yeah. There. No, I totally agree. And I think the last thing I'll say on it is that one thing I've learned about the Brazilian market that, again, to sort of these differences between all these different geographies, but in Brazil, there's a pretty massive gulf between full-time employed workers and independent contractors. And what I mean by that is if you are a full-time employee of a company in Brazil, 
that comes with a lot of legal legally required benefits that the company is required to give you like food vouchers and transportation vouchers and all these different things. So the general idea of trying to make life suck less for independent workers or independent contractors in Brazil specifically is, I think, a really good market to go after because the just sort of structure of the market and the legal protections afforded to full-time employees makes it really hard to kind of make the jump to being an independent contractor. So I think there's a argument to be made that there's sort of a latent demand for people who would prefer to go do their own thing or hang out their own shingle, but don't want to because of all of the barriers to being an independent contractor or solo employee in Brazil. And maybe this is just one more tool in the toolkit for making that slightly less painful. So pretty interesting. Let's manifest some stuff. Let us manifest. There's been a lot of things that people are already doing, but we're going to get them manifesting over here. Okay. Would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? Yeah, I've got a brief one. Um, it was when you were mentioning it earlier uh, with drowning in admin. I need a bank for time. And I don't actually mean depositing time and spending time, but you think about the amount of things, the time value of money, everything is related to time. Uh, what we often do is design a life around retiring at a certain age so that we can be free, but that doesn't happen. We design a life journey around trying to compound when we're young, but most people don't do that. So how do we make that visually apparent? How do we make that obvious to people? How do we help people refocus? I have all kinds of rituals and routines that are designed to remind myself that I'm dying every second. Yes. And that's not to sound morbid, it's to focus on what really matters in life, on spending time with family, on stack ranking those priorities, and trying to live up to a certain set of values that may or may not be right. That bank of time concept feels like a thread that we can pull on for optimizing, if not helping humans think about finances a little bit differently. Because we talk a lot about goals, but humans can't imagine goals, they can imagine death because that feels kind of immediate. There was a really interesting insurance company that I can't remember the name of in the UK. I know which one you're talking about, the death insurance one, right? Yeah, they had an idea of a death Yeah, wish. You know, what's the craziest way you want to die? Or what's what do you want to be remembered with when you die? And they were selling life insurance. Yeah, I remember that. It's like, we kind of don't want that to happen to you, but we, you know, it, it, it focuses you on in a playful way on the idea of things being finite. And I think that's powerful. Yeah, I love it. Well, so the name for this thing that you want, I think, should be Memento Mori. So Remember Death, I think, should be the name of this thing that you're offering. And I, I think it's a great point. I mean, um, there's a, a writer that I really like named Tim Urban, and he writes a lot about sort of like, if you look at your life at like a, not a 30,000 foot level, but like a 300,000 foot level, what does your life look like and how are you choosing to spend it? And he does these things like these very simple illustrations where it's like a grid with a thousand little boxes. And he's like, this is your life if you divide it up into a thousand cells and this is how much of it you've lived and this is where you're going and this is what's next. And it's just like simple visual illustrations of time, right? Which is to, to your point, kind of the one resource we all share. So I love that. I think that weaving time into... PFM and financial goals and discussions about where you want your money to go. Because really, like the ultimate leverage that you get with money is time. And so the better that you're able to use money to get time, the wealthier you are functionally. 100%. What are you manifesting, sir? I love that. All right. So mine is less a fintech company, but it's a thing I just think is like an infrastructure thing that would be nice to have in the market, which is going back to banking as a service. The number one concern that I think regulators have about banking as a service is sort of the inverse of the Silicon Valley Bank problem, which is if a fintech company rather than a bank fails, disappears, all their deposits go, the owners go to the Bahamas overnight, whatever happens, what happens to those customers, right? And the concern, the nervousness that they have is really we're depending on the fintech company and their banking as a service partner having a good ledger that they were using to keep track of all of the sub-accounts within these sort of master accounts that they have at these partner banks, and then being able to unwind if there's any sort of problem that needs to be dealt with. And as we know, not every fintech company has a great ledger. Maybe it's not super robust or resilient. Maybe it doesn't get updated quite as frequently as it needs to. So I think regulators are focused very much on like, 
how do we solve that? What do we do there? And I have a proposal. I have a thing that I, I would like to advance as a general notion, which is what if we had some sort of centralized source of truth in the vein of like, you know, in mortgage servicing, how there's a, a thing called the Mortgage Electronic Registration System, MERS. And basically, no matter what happens with your mortgage loan, if it gets resold on the secondary market and someone else buys the servicing rights, you can basically look up as a consumer that has a mortgage, where is my loan being serviced and who is my loan with? So it like, kind of keeps track, right? I kind of think we need something similar to that for banking as a service, where it's like, okay, every consumer that works with a fintech company has a like unique identification number and has nothing to do with their like identity. It's not their social security number or anything, but it's just this number. And it becomes sort of- it's just a primary yeah, key. Yeah, it's a primary key for basically keeping track of where your money is and like what banks are ultimately working with you such that no matter how complex BAS becomes, right? Like if we have a fintech company and they're working with a bank, but because of everything that happened with SVB, they actually want to work with- 12 different banks and they want to put all of their eggs in slightly different baskets and they want to spread their deposits out and blah, 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 blah. No matter how complex all that infrastructure becomes, it's all tied to this master key that allows for the very easy unwinding of any problems or answering any questions. And I wonder if there's an element of this next sort of phase of fintech that we're going into it's just going to get more complicated. We're just going to build more and more infrastructure all layered together and everything being interconnected. I think we need some kind of skeleton key to unlock all that complexity in the case of any problems so that we can ensure that we're still maintaining that kind of central trust, which again, post-SVB, we've sort of realized just how fragile trust really is in financial services. So that's my very vague, unformed thought about a thing that would be nice to have. I love it. You know, right now, the fintech nerds scroll to the bottom hashtag scroll to the bottom when figuring out who's the partner bank. You know, you go to the fintech page, you scroll to the bottom of the page and you find out who the partner bank is. But most consumers aren't doing hashtag scroll to the bottom. Yeah, that's the thing. We just made it Yeah, happen. I love it. Hashtag scroll to the bottom. Real fintech nodes. No. <laughs> and the crazy thing about what you're saying is like we can replace hashtag scroll to the bottom with just something that works. Yeah. That feels like a no-brainer. Let's go make it okay. happen. Manifesting. All right. That's the energy. Simon Taylor, a pleasure as always, sir. Thank you for joining me and we'll do this again soon. Stay classy, dude. All right. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.